0: Hello, I'm John Chambers, and uh, each time we do a podcast, we talk about the disruption that occurs in industries, business, society, enabled by a digital world and technology. Uh, We talk to who I believe are not just industry leaders, uh, but also people that are very good on society issues and very candid about teaching. Our role here is for the benefit of 258,000 LinkedIn uh, partners and Twitter partners Uh, members to be able to see what we see occurring and use it as a chance to learn from people that have been there, done it before, done some things brilliantly, but also made mistakes. And we'll try to cover all of those. Uh, It's it's an honor today to be talking with Brian Moynihan. Uh, I've known him for, Brian, I think decades. uh, And your leadership at Bank of America has been amazing. And and they are my bank and, and a great partner for all the years I've been at Cisco. Uh, your chairman and CEO of the, the bank, you're very active on global issues around the World Economic Forum, Business Roundtable, Financial Services Forum, etc. And as a not too subtle message at all, uh, in terms of where you place it importance-wise, you're chair of your company's Global Diversity and Inclusion Council. Prior to Bank of America, you were at Fleet uh, Boston. Uh, you were born in Marietta, Ohio, and I didn't know that, but my family... Marietta, for those of you who don't know, is near the High River, very near the West Virginia border, Uh, and my family came out of Parkersburg and Ravenswood, which is even lesser known than Marietta, but it says a lot about your your values. Uh, You graduated from Brown, JD from Notre Dame, and uh, you're somebody, Brian, for the people listening, often it's hard to get to know a CEO. You just walk the talk uh you you do what is right you're you're candid with people uh you're responsible for the financial return but also for society and the direction and you understand how innovation and technology can enable the bank's evolution and how it must enable it you value people tremendously i'm honored to call you a very good friend but you're also just a, a good person that people would love to have dinner with. Or I know you're returning from the ski slopes this morning. Uh, enjoy you uh, to go to a ski run with you and to have a nice lunch. So I, I cannot thank you enough, Brian. Uh, and it's great to be together again.
1: Well, John, thank you for that uh, humbling introduction. And um, it, I didn't know that about you, that your family was from Parkersburg, which is across the river in the Ohio Valley. But uh, it was interesting growing up there and and learning about life uh. In the, in, the, in the environment we're in but uh, it's a great place to grow up but i it, it's been uh, a great career and i've enjoyed it and thank you for all the recognitions but it's all the team that makes it all happen as you well know
0: i do but it also the leader is the one that pulls that team together and motivates them and drives the culture you know i'm going to jump right in uh we've been talking you know my view on this from all the way from the cisco days early 90s Uh, Every company was going to become a technology company, completely connected, uh, then moving into the digital world with 5G, mobile world, et cetera. Uh, You've often said and your analysts have often said that you're moving Bank of America to a technology company. How do you see that evolving uh, what are some of the lessons learned, both on making that transition, as well as some of the things perhaps you did well or you do overs you would do on that transition? It's a new generation of competitors too that come at you in ways that we haven't seen before.
1: Yeah, I think so I think John, when you look at it from how the company operates, and then you look at it from how our customers you, you, how our customers operate and. Sure whether it's a consumer or a wealthy individual or a, comp- a small company or a large company or an investor, you know, an institutional investor, their behavior has changed dramatically. So we've been shaping the company along the dimension that we, you know, people are incredibly important and a, the company has huge talent, not only talent to do development work and all the work we do, but also talent to cover clients and bring them ideas. But they have to be integrated with the technology delivery. And we call it high tech, high, high tech. And Obviously, there's a little bit of a sliding scale from the broad consumer business, which, you know, is obviously highly digitized to when you get to, you know, investment banking coverage of Matthew Coder and a team at global corporate investment bank. Obviously, that has a, a, an intimate you know, amount of relationship that goes on, too. But the technology to gather data and present it and understand markets and understand activities and understand the compet- competition in an industry. You know, you're piping that data in, and then when you get down to the more routine things those companies do, you know, send payments, you know, uh, uh, buy stuff, sell stuff, you know, the, the massive amount of receivables, payables, payments, information, and flow is also highly technical. So the broad way I always think about the company is we really have three major things that are our assets, our people, number one. Our technology, number two, and the buildings to keep them dry so they can operate honestly. and those are the three big internal assets we have. Now we have massive customers that are, obviously, the reason why we're here. But you, uh, technology is always going to be a, a part of that, you know, three-legged stool to make us work well, and so. You know, we could dive into the digitization of consumer business, which is different. But the, the way you operate, I think people sometimes confuse the, the customer side presentation with you got to digitize everything you do. You know, how your documents move the company, information moves, how you check it, how you organize it, how it aids process, how it aids AI, how it aids models and all that stuff is kind of interesting.
0: It's more than interesting. You know, two questions in one. Uh, you talked about the importance of mobile and digital banking. Uh, AI perhaps might be the next frontier, in my opinion, almost like the internet and cloud were before. How do those three come together in your mind? And I'm asking more as a business leader, not as a techie, how you think about it. Because so often people on LinkedIn and, and Twitter, are are, are we're, we're techie backgrounds. We don't think of it as what business outcome are you trying to get and how do you bring those together and hesitant about even how to approach executives uh, in the sales cycle. How do you think about new technologies uh, like AI in that mobile digital banking world?
1: So I think if you think about everything, it takes all parts. And so don't forget a network and ability to distribute the network and what your business was, because that information is tremendously important. It takes data, uh, huge data lakes that you can then manipulate to get to the AI engine and it takes the models and algorithms AI engine takes voice, voice recognition. That's been a stupendous impact for us. This thing we call Erica, which now has 20 odd million customers on it. They did, you know, three, 400 million interfaces last year, 400 and some interfaces to it last year. And that's just all automation. But behind that, you know, you say, Erica, what's my balance? There's 110 systems that have to be accurate. There has to be a, a network that can transmit the information from those systems to that mobile phone the person's going down the highway 70 miles an hour but by the way you got to recognize the voice and be able to ascertain it so it's interaction of all those capabilities which are critical and so people focus on ai but ai doesn't work with the data and information behind it people focus on voice recognition but that that only works as an actuator and i think voice recognition also has a high impact our company inside but then the big thing is how do you distribute that much information that fast that gets to 5g on the mobile on the mobile side, but also just the pipes that we have that you run are pretty tremendous. And, and being able to instantaneously bring that information up that's accurate, that's John Chambers account, not you know John T Chambers account, not John A Chambers account, and mess, you, know, you have to be so precise. And you could say, I want check number 62. And think about all the checks you've written, we have to find 62, bring it forward, and it has to happen instantaneously. So the interaction of all that, and it has different sides, customer applicability, teammate applicability, the huge engine that runs everyday applicability. And so, you know, we just always are thinking, you know, when people say, well, what happens? And robotics for us is really more AI and people robotics. You know, we don't build machines and stuff, but that's an important part of this, that people think that AI and robotics are the same when you get to the service industry in some ways when you think about it. But when people uh, people ask me, where's it going? I, I don't know, you know, but I know that we have to keep ahead of it, learn from it, study those competitors you talked about earlier, study, you know, outside our field and and just keep being curious about it because each year we do more than ever we thought we'd do, actually applying what we know now, which means next year will be even bigger.
0: And you know, I, the word that I use in describing, especially this year, is agility. And I used to consider it a marketing term. And now I realize we have to be agile at a speed we never did before. Brian, you grasp that in terms of how to use technology and nobody can tell the future, but you have to build an architecture which allows you to move in markets. Your most likely competitors, or at least my most likely competitors when I was at Cisco, and for the established player, is a new player with a different architecture coming at it with an entirely different advantage. Your one view of the customer, it works. I've told the story multiple times. When I came to Silicon Valley, your branch manager at the Stanford branch uh, was very kind and opened my account, and then she very nicely told me I, I wouldn't qualify for the loan for my house because I didn't have enough uh net worth on it and she helped me figure out how to do it and she won my loyalty from there on out. But I, they always viewed me as one customer, never yeah. a group of customers and a personal touch.
1: On- John, John, that's one of the interesting things I think when you you know, so you have the new competitors who aren't you know hamstrung by having legacy systems and everything. But I think the team yeah. under Kathy Lausanne's leadership and Ditch's leadership, the ability for them to modernize our systems at the same time we invested in tremendous forward technology development. So Three and a half billion dollars of code a year, and but you had to bring the systems up, architecture up, do to get it to the point. And so, do we have a cloud? Yeah, we have a huge internal cloud we created. But do we use external cloud share? And those are the words everybody talks about now. But it was it was it's a constant investment in that platform, which enables that technology. So that one customer comes from an emotional way we actually deal with our customers and want to, them to deal with us. But it really comes from the ability to actually think about that way and then get the systems to actually work together. And that. That was not as easy. And by the way, there's a lot of people who haven't done it yet. And it was Kathy's leadership and the digital leadership and their colleagues' leadership to got us
0: Completely agree. When you think about technology, uh, and uh, I'm not referring in any way to my, my prior company, but as a whole, the large technology, big players don't move anywhere near as fast as the small companies. The small companies can cannily attract the talent, the top AI experience. You know, one of my startups has 58. Uh, uh, PhDs of AI alone, the whole MIT graduating class of a year ago, all four of them in PhDs. And they they think five years, six years, seven years out, not what I need to do this quarter this year. How do you think about how do you use startups in your environment? How do you and Kathy think about it? And I agree with, she's an amazing leader there. Uh, how do you determine what you do organically? How do you determine how do you use new innovations or bring them in? Uh, how When do you decide to take risks? Or not with startups, perhaps purely because they can move with speed that didn't exist before. And as you, as we have all seen, it's unlimited capital at the present time, so they can achieve capital uh, independence remarkably quickly and and move with the speed, not worrying about this quarter, this year. How do you think about that?
1: Well, so there are a bunch of different ways. One of the um, one of the things we actually have, which is we have you know this the, the very talented research team that yes. is actually also. An asset we have that's always talking about what's out there and bringing it to us and so between the amount of volume of purchases we make from technology providers some of those startups providing services to us that research team that the investment banking team for about i don't know 15 20 years now we've been hosting series of uh, annual semi-annual multiple times a year events uh, that bring together companies, some of whom will contract with, some of whom we don't really invest in, but but we bring our investors and our, our other, other buyers of services for lack of a better term and these companies. Right. And so DocuSign was a company many years ago we brought into that fold, and you know, and everybody it was kind of ahead of its time and did it really work? Well, guess what? In the pandemic it just exploded in its usefulness. But it, it, and so we think that that's old news. But it, it was two elements: one was that we had to get it to work; two that we had to get it legally okay, and then we had to actually get the customers to use it, and that exploded. So you take a DocuSign for many years, ago, go. And so you know, we partner with them, we contract with them, but when you we can when we get interested in the company and bring them a contract the size of our contract, you know, that's a major win for that company. And we're a reference client. So they'll tend to, you know, partner with us to figure out what the problem we're really trying to solve, honestly, is. And I think um, that's been fun for the last decades and uh, a ditch and the team continue to do that. So having those assets to be curious about it, learn about it, having the humbl- humility to say we don't have this right you know we don't aren't going to be perfect we don't get to have all the answers we hire a lot of tremendous talented people but think think of how valuable it is to be able to have all our people but also have all those other people you know working every day to figure out how to make our company better And that's been pretty interesting that's how we actually partner with all the providers and and stuff you know so ai companies and um companies electronifying trading and doing different things. Zell was a, a consortium put together by the industry. So we do some of that. When you go to competitor companies, we you know we study them, they study us. We try to figure out why the customer wants to do business with them, some of the more fintechy companies. And then we figure out a lot of times you already have the product. So you know there's all the debate about you know we've had to keep the change for 20 years. You know the question is, you know, how useful a product is we have bank of america rewards we have all these things but sometimes we have the products and then now it's a question of pushing it sometimes we don't have the product and how do we think about it so we study the competitor side that way but i think frankly through that work we do to learn and the partner and in fact frankly when you spend as much money as we do people who want to be successful unicorns that you're working with come to us and say hey we got a product for you and that always keeps us on our toes
0: i like it i like it uh, you know, right now, probably more than ever, and we'll talk specifically about January in a moment, looking back for the year. Uh, But when you think about the economy, last year was about 5% GDP globally, people say 4% this year, 3% next year, it never is what they say. How do you think about that? And how would you educate all of us in terms of your thoughts about how do you prepare for it? And what do you think are the most likely, but how much how much beta swing is there in your thought process this year versus others, i.e., risk?
1: So, so we sit here and you know, near the end of January, they just got the numbers for the fourth quarter, and they were stronger than people thought. But that's sort of assumed because, frankly, that is a quarter. You know, the comparisons are lower. The the momentum from the stimulus is still in the economy and stuff. So, but your your point really about the people ought to think about is if you think you know uh, six four two. Six last year, it's going to come in between five and a half and six, four this year and two next year. Leave aside whether those numbers are exactly right. What we're saying is the economy is normalizing. Yes. We have a trend growth rate of a couple percent. And so the Fed's job is to keep get inflation back down because of all those monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, which is absolutely required beginning early in 20 to take the United States out of that hole. People forget, we went down 30% in GDP in a quarter. I mean, that that reduction in GDP is probably the fifth largest GDP in the world, or sixth largest, if you think about it. They it not yeah. restore it, though. But the question we had to get back on trend, and we're just getting back on trend. So, so of course, it's going to normalize. And so I think 642, think about the Fed normalizing. And the big risk is, can the Fed, you know, the big debate is, can Fed get the inflation under control without overshooting? Because in the end of the day, bringing the interest rate curve up, which is the last piece left on the table because the fiscal stimulus has stopped, to normalize the, uh, you know, the support for the economy requires them to take action. And it, it's re- it's slowdown. That's what they're supposed to do. They're trying to bring the inflation and prices, wages and prices that we see with all our clients. And I'm sure you see with all your businesses, which is very, very high now. And they got to bring it back into normal. So I think the challenge for 2022 is going to be, does the Fed get it right? Does the market overreact before they have a chance to even try to get it right? And do you see these ebbs and flows? But at the end of the day, uh, the Fed knows its job, it, it, it's clear on what it can do, and then the question is how the market reacts to that. And so I think that'll make risk assets a little bit less uh, uh, attractive when there's a zero floor underneath the rate structure and things like that. But and that's what you're seeing going on in the market. But at the end of the day is, this is the Fed's job to get the economy back to trend growth with trend inflation. And frankly, you know, the, they, the, all the people who work on this around the world, in the US especially, did a great job over the last 24 months to deal with an issue no one understood, no one expected, no prior happening to compare to and got us back really within seven quarters to the size economy, nearly the same size and expected to grow faster. So, of course, they got to raise rates to get it more than the normal size. You know, it's
0: amazing. Uh, during my entire lifetime that I could remember, I never saw government's fiscal policy and the central bank policy coordinated within our country, but around the world as effectively as they were. Uh, When we talk about this year, Brian, I I connect the dots reasonably well. I always take a little bit of risk in outlining what I think the year is going to be like. And so very early January, I said it would be a year that's like a roller coaster, that uh, tremendous highs and tremendous lows uh, that I felt the year would end up okay, Uh, But uh, uh, it will be traumatic downs that will test our fortitude and it's like on a roller coaster your stomach comes up into your your chest and about the time you think it's never going to end it whips back up uh, little and I said anybody that wasn't willing to do this and didn't have that stomach for risk should probably uh, do uh, sit on the sidelines. After January, I was thinking maybe I should have sat on the sidelines, a little bit nervous. Uh, let's talk about it not at as a point in time, but in the bigger picture. Your thoughts about uh, uh, where we are now, and we look back three months from now and 12 months from now watching this podcast. Uh, what, what do you think we'll be doing, and how will we view January uh, in terms of is it an aberration or what?
1: Uh, no, I think it's part of the normalization, right? You had when the, you know, when money was free and there was a lot of it, of course, the other assets came up. And I think there's just going to be more discerning. So, you know, a lot of the IPOs and you're a lot of your uh, parties you engage with and mentor, uh, John, you yeah. know, are saying, oh my gosh, you know, the IPO price was X and now we're below the IPO price. That happens, you know, that's what goes on. And then uh, then, the, then the earnings get underneath it, or the revenue growth gets underneath it and drives the growth back through. But of course, the enthusiasm that can go on sometimes uh, has to be backed up. So our our, our experts basically have the S&P flat for this year. And so, you know, it's a, and, that, and that, that means that they're saying, look, we're going to run around in circles and sort of stay in place. And whether they're precisely right or not, that, that's an indication you're not going to see the kind of lift you had last year at 35, 40% or whatever the number was. So um, so I think, look, capital is still wide, widely available. You know, the idea that there, there's a lot of money that is going into new ideas every day um, the public market's going to obviously have, have made a decision to be a little a little more uh, discerning in IPOs and stuff, and that's going to slow down some of the activity at the fringes. But a good core company with good prospects and a good business plan is going to get capital, either on a private side or public side. I guarantee it. They always do. It's just a question at the edges. It comes back and forth. You know. Remember that I've got to say it earlier on the earlier question, but John, we are in a war against the virus, and you know the miracles of medicine gave us some pretty good ammunition to fight that war. Uh, yes. But it's still somewhat unpredictable. And more than anything else, the, what 2020, 2022 is going to look like is going to be dictated by you know this virus sort of getting through the system finally and getting out the other side of it, which appears to be happy, knock on wood, in the United States with the new variant kind of cases up and down and, and a, a normalization around the pattern, according to the experts. If that's true, then you've got to be enthusiastic about twenty two. Um, that was not true in 21. We entered the year thinking, you know, as the vaccines came on, we'd be all beset. And then we learned about the virus different ways. And we did, I think we exit you with even a more sober understanding of this thing. And I think that that is the wild card. But the good news is I think we're more fundamentally, uh, we've, we've, we've won the war or we're winning the war. Now we got to finish off the war. And that's that's the question. So more than anything else, that's that's the near term test for everybody is, as we have and flow with these cases in other countries around the world. And in the omicron virus here in the united states you know it, that's going to be testy here for the first six months of 2022.
0: so kind of moving into lightning round for the next five or six questions uh i, w- I would love to show, uh, start with leadership lessons learned and i always like to, to uh, talk about if you if there's one thing you wish you had learned earlier as a leader and you could share with the audience what would it be uh brian that you that would help a lot of people listening that that you now use and you wish you'd found out perhaps when you were 30.
1: I think, I think the, the, the idea is to have an ability to visualize smart ideas done by everyone that has to do them and not just smart ideas. And so I came up through strategy and I was a lawyer and then I came to the private sector, you know, the the yeah. private side and ran m a groups and strategy and we were always a smart in our own mind whether it was true or not we were always the smartest people you know we we would yeah. deliver our opinions but the question you know about 10 years into uh about three years into me running business i had a teammate who come up completely differently you know she, she was a talented teammate come up from the branch teller to run our private bank and one day uh, jane said to me she said you know brian these are smart ideas but how how do we how do we really think about them? don't we have to think about the person who actually has to do them as your number one standpoint. So I think leaders have to be able to visualize the last node of activity yes. and link it to ideas and figure out the business process between them. And then can people make it happen all the way down the line, especially in a very large company like ours. And I think that's a lesson that's hard to learn till you actually get to the point where you sort of see what you can, because believe me, when a leader says, we're gonna lean left, the world leans left it. it but the question is the lean from the top down, but the, but the people actually have to do the work may not be able to lean left. You know, they, it may not be possible to execute. So you have to start out in on anything you're trying to do. And, and that then may enables teammates thinking team customer teammates to you as a and then how is that idea fair? That's the leadership for us. And I'd say uh, that's guided a lot of how we run the company. Not only we need talent teammates and be the best place for those teammates to work, we have to think about our business processes from the people who actually do the work and not from the people who have smart ideas and figure out how to bridge those smart ideas to the work.
0: You know, very often people then ask, what are the most common characteristics that you see your your best leaders, what are they have? I'm going to ask the reverse of it. What mistakes will young leaders make that uh, you could maybe coach them through by listening to this podcast that you see common mistakes by some of your rising stars that you wish you'd been able to have them think a little bit more before they made them?
1: A, a couple of things. One is, you know, as people move to organizationally, and Ram Charan writes a lot about the, you know. Uh, Turns in management and things like that they they always try to do their last job you know because they were good at it that's why they got promoted and then they still try to do it and that tends to have them fail because two one is it's not the right time allocation but more importantly the rest of the people need a boss and so if you're one of ten and you go to uh, manage those ten people and you're one of the ten people before you got to be the boss the other nine and if you're not really thinking about what you do with your time as that boss then you tend to you'll get caught and you you may still, you know, if it's a sales job, you may be out there selling like heck, but you need all kinds of salespeople to be effective. You're not going to be able to lift the, the division or part of the company. So one is, one is you know, do your next job. And the second thing is learn how to manage all the people. You know, there's, you know, as you get to be larger organizations, if you have a company starting and growing, or if you go up organizationally, you know, if you think an average span of control of 10, your first job is to manage 10, your second job is to manage 100,000. You know on up yes you your your scope and scale and the way you manage has to account for a thousand people in your third level not the 10 and so you have to think how to manage and by the way they're going to be very different there's going to be older and younger people and then there's going to be men and women there's going to be all kinds of ethnicity and diversity so you have to think about how your messages and your and your challenge appeal and then the third thing is be curious if, if a manager lear- loses his curiosity if they don't quit learning yeah they can they can you know, they just start going backwards, and so I always tell kids from the college: the day you leave college and come to work for us, you're extremely talented, but you start to get a little less smart unless you challenge yourself to keep learning at the rate you learn in college while you're doing your day job, so to speak. So you got to read, you got to absorb, you got to be an information you know sponge and bring it in. And I think managers sometimes you know, rely too much on the success that got them there and figure out you know, I got to start from scratch and be successful in this job. That's understanding what it is. That's how to manage all the people, but also how to stay curious about the job you're doing and the job you need to do and what the companies do from you at this job level, not the old one.
0: You know, one of the next topics I'd love to focus on is the uh, ESG corporate social responsibility. I know it's very important to you at the bank. You've kind of been the champion in many ways with your peers. How do you think about that in terms of uh, B of A's culture and how do you tie it to what you're doing on diversity and inclusion and ESG commitments?
1: So I think if you if you back up, we believe in the genius of the end. You got to produce profits and purpose. You got to deliver for your shareholders and society. And it's not or it is and. And the great business writer Jim Collins, you know, wrote about this in 1996. That's one basic principle. So no matter what I say next, everybody's going to remember you start. If you don't deliver the, for your shareholders, you're not going to get permission to deliver for the rest of the constituents. So, and you have to blend together. If you back up to the broadest context, and I've worked with the International Business Council, the World Economic Forum, I've worked with the ERT and other uh, groups around the world. And, uh, you know, what you're really trying to do is align capitalism. Capitalism, the only way to solve the biggest problems of the world, the world's big problems are to have you know the world have uh, development along the SDGs, because that's what the world decided you know was important to it. 190 countries. So to make that happen. Capitalism has to drive. There's not enough charity. Governments are running big deficits and don't have the money. And capitalism has innovation, the people, the talent, the capital. And by the way, it has a profit motive, which always re- replenishes. So you know, when you think about ESG, what are you really doing, aligning capitalism to deliver for society? And then what does society want? That's the SDGs. And those are people, planet, prosperity, and principles of governance. So it's the four sort of pillars of the stakeholder capitalism and, and or constituent capitalism, all the different words used it. And, and so the, the idea is that we at Bank of America drive our company, deliver on the genius of the hand, and then we have metrics to measure how we deliver along the stakeholders that are important to us. Yep, we got delivery returns, as you said at the beginning, that we delivered for our shareholders across the last 12 years, but importantly, we increased the diversity of the company. We went from $10 an hour starting wages to $21 an hour. We never raised the healthcare care costs for the people at the lower end of the spectrum and no person Bank of America has had a, a trend cost pass through them. And matter of fact, three years we didn't increase the premiums at all. So we've driven down their costs and given them better health care, the mental wellness benefits, you know, hiring veterans, hiring uh, from low and modern. These are all things to have the best place for people to work, and so that's the people pillar. And then you get to the governance. We have a strong board and how we think about how we operate. And then you get to you know, how we deliver for society in terms of our uh, charitable programs, in terms of our investments, our environmental work, a trillion and a half dollar ESG commitment, a trillion of its environmental over the next 10 years. But it's all back to this basic principle, genius and profits, purpose, shareholders, and society. Because at the end of the day, you know, that is aligning capitalism to what needs to get done. And it's the only way it'll get done. So if, you, if you're if you a believer that this is the most impressing issue in the world, capitalism will actually make it happen. If you're a capitalist, you got to do it this way because this is what society wants capitalism to do. Otherwise we'll have challenges. You know, when
0: you think about it, uh, I completely agree. I was taking notes. I've got to be careful because I'm losing my spot. But uh, on, uh you're, you're the leader of the Global Diversity and Inclusion Council. How important is it that the CEO owns that? Because being very candid about business as a whole, we have not done a good job in these areas traditionally at all. Uh, what does it mean when the top takes the leadership role here? Uh, secondly, how do you get the whole body to lean right as opposed to, as you said earlier, the head moves right, but you didn't get the middle of the organization to move? How do you think about that? And how do you drive it into the benefits for a return to shareholders, but also the benefits for society?
1: Well, you know, number one, if you look at yeah, you know, we we have a global company in terms of large companies like Cisco, and in terms of investor investors. But in the United States, we are a consumer and wealth management company. So we represent people and um, businesses of all size. So you know, and in, in, in our success determines America's success, and our success looks like American society. And we have to be able to be, you know, we have to match American society. So the basic principle is: is how how can you you know, be successful if you don't have women wanting to come work at your company and drive you know, with our client bases and things like that or or, or any other ethnic diversity or uh, or gender etc et so that's sort of the basic principles if you're going to approach the whole market you got to have a company that can really do it how we do it is kind of interesting we we literally measure from every level in the company our diversity and then we measure it every quarter you know, when a business plan, when a business uh, leader comes in and, and presents their, you know, performance against plan and performance against goals and everything, you know, there are pages about, you know, what we call internal movement, external movement, levers, etc. you know, every different level all the way through the company and already making progress to make sure that the diversity we have in the in the company that matches society overall is moving to every level of management. In some places, we're in very good shape in that. In some places, we're still working on it, but it's that inspection that we don't lead to chance. And so, does that require diverse slates of candidates? Does it require a lot of those things that people use tools? Yeah, but the real driver is there's no mystery of where we're behind or ahead, you know, where we're not matching the amount of uh, uh, Latino in society percentage, or Blacks in society percentage, or Asian-American society percentage, or where we're over-indexed, frankly, because of how we, how we got here for women. And so we measured everywhere. We measure equal pay for equal work. We then do tremendous development programs tremendous internal mobility with the goal of that's that's how we get the body represented well. Then the question is how people feel being here. We, that's what we define inclusion as. And we really want people we asked, we started measuring inclusion in our employee survey every year, about, uh, about 15 years ago, before I was CEO, we, we developed this tool. And we said, you know, let's go out and define inclusion. And they wanted to hire consultants. I said, don't do that. Just ask people what they mean. And so yeah. we had a, a young woman, you know came in and said you know what I want to do I want to come into work and I don't want to have to leave myself at the door and pick it up on the way home and I said that's how we define inclusion you can come to work and be who you are and be all you want to be and still be successful in this company and that's what we strive to so we measure but we strive to it. and how do we get there you know we have 180,000 discrete particip- you know, people participating or 160 some thousand people participating in employee groups we have you have networks around the world. We have um, tremendous, uh, what we call courageous conversations around the issues, especially those in the, in uh, the spring of 2020 around the killings, uh, uh, and, et cetera. We have you know, train, c- courageous conversations about you know what it's like to have a disabled children in schools. You know all these all these conversations we have. You know we try to drive to make our teammates feel more included and have the ability to talk to each other about what's going on. So one is representation measured every level. The second is inclusion, again, measured every level. And then basically saying to people, okay, let's come up with anything we can so that people can express their points of view. And by the way, with 200,000 employees, we have people who have all kinds of points of view. It's not one uniform company, but they want the company to have, you know, the kind of company that they'll feel proud working for and, and, and relating to. And that's part of the, the reason why we do it too is, you know, in our employee delights, the highest it's ever been uh, in the pandemic. It, before the pre-pandemic, it's moved up higher during the pandemic. And because of a lot of the programs we put in, and you know, we've got the whole, you know, return to office and what you're going to do flex time and all that stuff is in front of us. But, you know, we're doing it this old-fashioned way. We're going to ask employees, what do you really want and why? And will it work in our business that, you know, but we're not going to sit there and say, we're going to presume it, but that's the kind of inclusive dialogue you have. And it's very different. Some people just want to start an hour later because they want to be able to drop their kids off to school. Some people want to work from home a day or two. Some people want a slower, lower commute, but it's, it's, it's a process asking those questions that really makes you inclusive.
0: It makes all the sense in the world. Uh, maybe a last question. Uh, are you a product, more of your successes or your, your setbacks and challenges?
1: To the outside world, you're always a product of your successes. To the inside world, the fear, you know, learning from mistakes, learning how not to repeat, learning how to do all things in moderation while still making aggressive you know, investments and, and movement. All things in moderation is an old Roman proverb. It's not what your grandmother told you. you, know, it's kind of, you know So you're formed more by things you learn not to do. Because you know your successes are, you know, everybody recognizes and says, "Oh, you guys did a great job of digitizing the consumer," but you know, but that's that might not be repeatable. The thing to avoid the mistakes of what happened in the global financial crisis, or what happened in the real estate crisis in the late '80s, or what happened with capital equity being challenged. Think about this crisis we went through, and we had no question around our company. Therefore, we have provided you know billions of dollars of. Uh, borrowing instantaneously we were able to defer consumer payments and forgive fees 2 million customer deferrals 150 million overdraft fees we waive, so people get it we distributed billions and billions and billions of benefits because we are stable so the fa- learning how not to have problems with your capital liquidity and stuff is actually as critical as your successes so i think it's equally balanced but i but believe me you know it It uh you know, in the outside world you'll always be judged by successes How you get there will be more learning from your failures.
0: You know, I couldn't agree more. I I felt that in a painful way. For 10 years at Cisco, we created 10,000 millionaires among our employees. Uh, We won every award imaginable, uh, and we grew at 65% growth per year. Uh, In 2001, I just missed the dot-com bubble. And because I I didn't see it coming, I laid off 7,854 people that were my family. And I was very, very close to and I learned huge lessons on that. It was the most painful year of my life. Uh, but to your point, internally that externally it's it's they judge your successes, I think a great way of summarizing.
1: Well, one thing on that, John, I think a management failure is to have to do that kind of layoff. And I and we did it in 2007 when the financial crisis hit 10,000 people in like a week. And I said, we will never do that again. we manage our headcount three, five years out thinking about it. So we're massively deploying. And during the cri- this last crisis, we said everybody kept their job. And awesome. believe me, we didn't need everybody doing everything they're doing, but we said everybody kept their job and we were able to keep the cost under control. And now we redeployed people. So, um, so, you know, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think it's yeah, that's a lesson. That's one of the things management always has to keep an eye on, which is we we employ 200,000 people. They have 600,000 family members, and we're stewards of their, uh, of, of them that we got to be careful of.
0: Brian, you've been amazing. We ran a little bit over time. I want to thank you for that. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to Chambers Talks. I'd encourage you to uh, rate and review uh, what we could do better. And, Brian, I value the friendship. You're an amazing person and, and a very good friend. Uh, you have a great day and uh, get back out on the ski slopes.
1: Well, thank you, John. And I'm happy to do this on my vacation to give you a chance to talk. And what you're doing for society here is great to take these lessons from these people and use your wisdom to portray them. So thank you, John, for all you do. And you for having me.
0: My pleasure, Brian. Have a great day.